Well, happy Father's Day to you fathers. My children decided to wish me happy Father's Day by waking us up at like 3 in the morning. And then starting, all three of them woke up at various different times. And so if I fall asleep while I'm preaching, that's bad. So I will try and make sure you guys stay awake. But uh, happy Father's Day. And then happy uh, post-graduation day for all you graduates out there. I can't really see who's all graduated, but um, congratulations there. Um, look forward to hearing your new adventures moving forward in life and just what happens with you guys. So um, today I'm not going to blow your mind by any stretch of imagination by some amazing theology that you've never heard before. But my idea today is to hopefully blow your mind about a situation that will change the way you view Jesus and change the way you view something that he said that Victoria just read that we've probably never thought of before, really understood the situation. And so let's get in. Uh, so July 20th, 1969, having just stepped off a flimsy ladder in the sea of tranquility, one man uttered 12 words that I would guess that every single one of us in here have heard before. Any guesses? Nobody? I still can't see you all. Stepping onto the surface of the moon for the first time in human history with a half a billion people watching on TV, Commander Neil Armstrong proclaimed, that's one small step for a man one giant leap for mankind. It's a quote we've all heard before. And upon hearing those words, we know the situation. We know that the gravity behind that. And if you were alive back then or, or know your history, we, you could really feel that just the, the passion and the emphasis behind that as we fulfilled what JFK had said in, in 1961 to reach the moon before the end of the decade. And we did, July 20th, 1969. And there was so much excitement and, and so much just passion behind that. Um, a couple weeks ago, I preached this uh, very similar sermon uh, to a church on the coast, and they're all uh, old people, if this would be nice. Um, but they knew, they knew the quote, and, and they came up to me afterwards, and they said, yeah, it, just, it was amazing, just the, just the sense of like just pride in the U.S. that we have simply from those words. And I think quotes often resonate really strongly with us. They pack a punch not only because we understand the words being said, but we also we understand the setting. We also stand, understand the cultural significance behind that and the nuances behind the words and the phrases being said. For example, Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, it conjures up images of, of racial, racial injustice and the movement behind that to end that, to bring equality uh, to all people. And we hear his words echoing inside of our heads, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty we are free at last. And, and quotes from Scripture are very similar. I would imagine that every single one of us in here has heard John 3.16. For God so loved the world. But how oftentimes do we see it on signs? Do we see it on billboards? And we understand the words being said. And we understand that it's God's emphasis and it's God's plan. And we've heard of it. But do we think about what it means in the context? Or whether you believe Christianity or not, or whether you think Scripture is true, or whether you believe God or you believe uh, God is just a bunch of hogwash, I would say that most people have heard the very first line of the Bible, in the beginning God created. Scripture is just as powerful for quoting. But the difference between quotes from Scripture and the quotes from the, the real world is that we pour over the words of Scripture. We pour over John 3.16 and what it means. We examine them for their theology for their impact on our lives. We look at the Greek, we look at the Hebrew, we parse verbs and we do all kinds of stupid stuff that we don't normally do with words, but in a good way. 
And we're justified in doing that because we believe that these scriptural words are the divinely inspired words of God and we should pour into them. And we should dive deep and spend that time working through them. The problem, though, with scripture is that we've lost the cultural significance and the cultural understanding of much of what happens in the Bible. For example, if I were to say the first time Josh kissed Liz was watching the ball fall in New York City. I have no idea if that's true, but we'll just pretend. We understand, though, what I'm saying, right? We understand that it's New Year's Eve, that for some reason we all kiss on New Year's Eve watching the ball drop in New York City. Or if I were to say last year on the 4th I set my grass on fire, you all laugh because not only do you think that that's a real possibility that I could have done that, uh, we also understand that it's the 4th of July, that we light off fireworks on the 4th of July. I don't have to spend the time going into that because I just by saying on the 4th and fireworks, we just know intrinsically because that's our culture. And we've lost that because it's not our culture anymore. We don't live way back in ancient Hebrew times or ancient Greek times. So when we read scripture, we ask ourselves, what does it say? What does it mean? What does it mean for my life? But we don't often ask ourselves, why was something said? Does it matter why something was said? Admittedly, no, not always. Sometimes it really does not matter why something was said, but sometimes it really does. And I believe that when we finally start to grasp the why of something was said, it really does hammer home the truth of what is being said in whatever particular statement that is. For example, when we hear that Ronald, Ronald Reagan's quote, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Reagan could have been standing anywhere. He could have been standing on the White House lawn. He could have been standing someplace in the U.S. or Switzerland or who knows where. But the fact that he was literally standing right in front of the Berlin Wall at the Brandenburg Gate saying, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall this wall right behind me, this wall that's causing all this division, it brings so much more emphasis and so much more impact. We understand why he said it, where he did. He could have said it anywhere, but it brings so much more meaning behind it to understand why he said it. So today in John, we're going to be in John chapter, chapter 7, so starting in verse 1, it says, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go into Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, depending on your translation, was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here, go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believe in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast, I am not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. So let's do some good work here. So let's set the scene. Jesus is in Galilee because it says, as it says in verse 1, the Jewish leaders were seeking to kill him. Although if we look back in chapter 6, he had recently just fed 5,000 people, which is pretty amazing, pretty awesome. That had not dissuaded the Jewish leaders from wanting to kill him. This huge miracle that they all had seen him do had not stopped this desire for them to want to kill him. The reality is, is that ever since he had healed the paralytic in chapter 5 on the Sabbath, Jesus had been targeted by the Jewish leaders in order to kill him. Therefore, Jesus was spending his time up north in Galilee, where for the moment it was safer. 
And we get another clue of what's happening in the scene in verse 2. It says the Feast of Booths was at hand, or the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, which I'm going to call the rest of the time the Feast of Tabernacles. And for most of us, I assume this is pretty much a throwaway sentence. Okay, cool. Feast of Tabernacles is at hand. Uh, because we don't understand it. We just kind of gloss over it and move on. The problem is, though, is that this is probably the second most important character in this entire scene. The Feast of Tabernacles is hugely important as to why Jesus says what he says later on. But we just don't know it because we don't understand what the feast is. And we're going to get to that point in a minute. Wow, that got really quiet. Um, the last element we need to see is the interaction between Jesus and his brothers. We know that Mary had other siblings or had other children, and they're with him. But why are they encouraging him to leave Galilee and head south to Judea, despite that it's not very safe for him? In fact, they give a rather shocking statement in verse 4. They say, nobody works in secret when they're trying to be known openly. If we put it another way, they're saying, Jesus, stop hiding. Get out there and spread your name. But why are they saying this? You know, certainly we can see in verse 5 that it says that uh, his brothers didn't even believe him and the things that he was saying. But why pressure him to go out into the open? And if we look at the end of chapter 6, the first part, he feeds the 5,000. But at the end of chapter 6, Jesus really starts saying some very difficult things to understand, some difficult things to grasp. And as a result, a majority of his followers left him. And I think it's an interesting theme because we don't often think about Jesus losing followers. We just kind of tend to think of him just gaining and gaining and gaining. But the reality is at the end of chapter 6, he lost a lot. And here are these guys who are saying, Jesus, I want to put my faith in you, but I don't know if I can believe because all these guys have left you. All these people have left you. Prove that you really are who you're saying who you are. Go down and do something because there's going to be a lot of people at this feast. Jesus, stop hiding convince us that you are who you really claim to be. And although this feast was a festival time for the people, for Jesus, this marks the beginning of open hostility for him, really from, from now till the end, of, uh, the end of John. Really militant opposition to him. And ever since he healed the paralytic on the Sabbath day in chapter 5, he'd been a target. And really this becomes kind of a, a hinging moment in his ministry. He remained in Galilee where he would be safer, but he couldn't remain in Galilee and observe the feast. So he sent his brothers on to the feast, and he remained. He said, you guys go. Go ahead. However, we see, starting in verse 10, that Jesus didn't stay in Galilee. Verse 10 says, after his brothers had gone to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? There was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he's leading the people astray. So apparently, somehow disguising himself, uh, Jesus goes into the feast to try and ascertain what is being said about him. Now, totally different day and age, remember, so, you know, we didn't have social media, we didn't have pictures of him everywhere, so it probably wouldn't have been super difficult for him to disguise himself, but he managed to go into Jerusalem, into this feast, and nobody recognized who he was. Um, How he did that, we don't really know, but he did. So at this point, we're introduced to the last two characters in our scene. We have the Jews and the people. So the Jews here, anytime we read the word Jews, it's not just the collective Jewish people. Anytime we read the word Jews here, it's the actual the Jewish leaders, uh, comprised of Pharisees and the chief priests, for the most part, who all were Sadducees. And if we know anything about their relationship, we know that the Pharisees and the Sadducees 
did not get along. It's like the ducks and the beavers. They just don't like each other. Um, but in this one moment, they said, we are going to hate Boise State together, and so we're going to be friends. Uh, I'm from Boise, so I can say that. Um, so they agree that they have this common enemy in Jesus. Let's, let's agree to put our disagreements aside and say we're going to hate Jesus to the point that we want to kill him. So the exceptions would be Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. So if you read all the way through chapter 7 and in chapter 8, uh, you're going to see these two guys kind of being the outsiders as far as the ones that really didn't oppose Jesus in the same way. But for the most part, so the Jews, the Jewish leaders, uh, were the ones who hated Jesus. And the second group were the people. So there's two groups of people lumped together when it just says the people. There's the people that came in from outside of town to celebrate this feast. And that would be a huge number of people that came in. Um, depending on, you know, the various different um, documentaries or who, whatever that you read about this, so this is possibly the number two uh, most traveled to feast during the course of the year. So this is a huge feast that people would come from outside the country. So you've got that group of people. And then you've got the group of people uh, that lived inside Jerusalem that were under the, the daily rule and the daily just kind of teachings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they had a lot more awareness as to what was going on and what the Jewish leaders thought. So those are your, your two groups of people. Uh, and we read in verse uh, chapter 20, or verse 20, chapter 7, that the people were amazed that anybody would even want to kill Jesus. All these people coming from outside of town were confused. Like, we've heard him doing these miracles. We've heard him doing some amazing things. How in the world would anybody want to kill him? They're crazy. You know, because they hadn't heard yet of all that was going on inside of Jerusalem and, and the hatred that the, the Pharisees and the scribes had towards him. Uh, they were not really just not up to date on the gossip in a, in a lot of ways because they were from outside of town. So, after having done some market research, and at about the middle of the feast, Jesus begins teaching in the temple. So starting in verse 14, it says, About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews, remember the Jewish leaders, therefore marveled, saying, How is it this man has learning when he has never studied? This is a week-long feast, so uh, if we say Jesus kind of around Wednesday-ish uh, went to the temple to, be, to begin teaching, uh, did what he did. And the Jewish leaders marveled. How is it that this man with no learning, with no education, how is he so smart? He's saying some amazing things. And although the Jewish leaders, they were amazed at what he was saying and his words and his wisdom and his teaching, they called into credibility his educational pedigree. And by doing so, they, they said, eh, he's just, it's just his opinion. What he's saying, while seemingly good, it's just opinion. The people, you guys can just disregard it. Uh, Jesus taught with authority of his own, but the scribes and Pharisees taught with the authority of others. They simply quoted other, other famous rabbis or other famous people. Jesus is quoting his own authority. Jesus is his own um, just kind of emphasis. I am God. Essentially, I can say what I want. Um, his enemies were saying that his teachings were nothing but private opinions and not worth much. But Jesus explains, uh, and I'm, I'm skipping sections I know because we want to get through it, but Jesus explains that his doctrine came from the Father. He had already made it clear in chapter 5 that he and the Father were one in the works that they did. This is what started him to become a target because when he was healing the paralytic, um, and then the judgment that he executed was holy and right because it came from God. Now he is claiming his teachings are coming from the Father directly. But 
as we know, Jesus rightly could claim that authority because we know that he is God. You see, the Jews, the Jewish leaders, they were dependent on their education. They were dependent on their authority and just the authority imparted to them by the people and the doctrines that they had, but it was all secondhand information. Jesus insisted that his experience and his authority and his teachings came directly from God. The Jewish leaders were attempting to kill Jesus, yet at the same time proclaiming to know the truth of the Old Testament. And they proclaimed to obey it. And yet here they are, trying to kill the very one who's coming to fulfill it. An enlightened and educated mind is no guarantee of a pure heart or sanctified will. Some of the world's worst criminals have been very highly intelligent and well-educated people. Just because we're educated doesn't mean that we have wisdom and understanding, and Jesus is trying to illustrate that point. You see, Satan offered Adam and Eve knowledge. It was knowledge based on disobedience, Genesis chapter 3. Jesus offered knowledge as a result of obedience. Dr. G. Campbell Morgan, he was a theologian in the early 1900s, uh, he said it really well when he said, when men are wholly, completely consecrated to the will of God and want to do that above everything else, they find out that Christ's teaching is divine, that it is the teaching of God. The scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees and all of them, they wanted to do their own thing. They wanted to follow the law. But what Dr. Morgan is saying is when you follow God completely, you realize that this really is the teaching of God, not the teaching of man. So verse 19, Jesus goes on to say, Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keep it. Why do you seek to kill me? And the crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So Jesus is asking them, you have the entire law. How do you not know this already? Why am I here having to describe to you truths that you should already have figured out? Moses has given you the law to follow, yet none of you manage it. And here I am fulfilling it. And despite all of that, you want to kill me simply because I healed a man on the Sabbath. He says, you, you get away with circumcising. And you claim that's, that's okay. And here I heal an entire man on the Sabbath. And you're so angry with me to the point that you want to kill me. And the people respond. Remember, these are just the general population that haven't caught on to what the leaders are thinking. It's like, Jesus, you're, you're crazy. You have a demon. We would say now, nowadays, like, are you smoking something? Like, what are you on? Who wants to kill you? They had no idea. Who wants to kill you? Are you on drugs? Like, they just had no idea that their leaders had caught on to this. But those living in Jerusalem, they had an understanding of the religious leader's dislike of Jesus, but they were confused as to why Jesus was still speaking. So they say in verse 25, uh, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is this not the man who they seek to kill? And yet here he is speaking openly. And they say nothing? Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? It's a huge statement. These people of Jerusalem, the people that knew what the religious leaders were saying, 
and they knew that they wanted to kill Jesus. And they're seeing him teach, and they're seeing him say some amazing things. And they're like, isn't this the same guy that they're really mad at, and they want to kill? And yet they're not even doing anything. Maybe they, our religious leaders are thinking that he's the Messiah, which is why they're not killing him. Clearly they understand that something's happening. Jesus responds in verse 28. He's like, you know me. You know where I come from, but I have not come from my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So Jesus is slowly beginning to hint that he's part of something greater, that he's part of God. He says, I know why God sent me. You, however, do not. So he's addressing all these different three crowds at the same time. The, the Jewish leaders, the people from outside of Jerusalem were calling them just demon-possessed, and then the, the, the people of the day, the people in Jerusalem, were like, no, you might be the Christ. And Jesus is saying, I am. I know where my authority is coming from. I know why God sent me. You guys do not. But now we come to the, really the crux of our entire text. So uh, starting in verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And it's no doubt here that Jesus was referring to the experience of Israel recorded in the desert in Exodus chapter 17, where God delivered water to the people by Moses striking his staff on the rock, and out of that flowed living water. The water was a symbol for power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, by comparing himself to the water, is announcing himself as the Spirit of God. Believers not only drink of the water, but they would become channels of living water to bless the thirsty world. And I'm going to venture a guess that most of us have heard sermons based on this verse. We have a pretty good grasp of what living water means. But the real question is, why does Jesus stand up and cry out with a loud voice? If anyone thirsts, come to me. Why in the midst of this does he have this sudden shift to water? Well, the answer lies in the clues that we get in starting in verse 37. On the last day, the great day, remember this is a week-long feast, is the last day of the feast. So what is this feast all about? So the Feast of Tabernacles occurs after the harvest has been completed and before the beginning of the new agricultural year. So typically sometime this is September or October, most of the time in October. It includes the well-deserved rest from their labors, and sincere rejoicing in what God has done in providing for his people. So this huge celebration of the harvest that they gathered for what God has provided. Israelites were called upon to remember God's provincial care after being redeemed from bondage in Egypt and to remember his provision during the 40 years of wilderness wandering. This is why God commanded Israel to observe the festival by leaving their permanent dwellings to live in more fragile temporary booths or tabernacles. They would literally go out and gather a bunch of sticks and logs and who knows whatever else and build these just kind of little temporary week-long shelters that they would live in to remind themselves of the Exodus days, to remind themselves what God had provided for them during those 40 years of wandering in the desert where the people lived every day in these temporary shelters. So it was a combined feast. It was a combined feast to celebrate the harvest, to celebrate what God had provided for them, but at the same time, it was a reminder to them of the provision that God had given them throughout the time of Israel, throughout the time of the Exodus. And God instituted this feast as a reminder that dependence on him was not something that ended when the promised land was reached. 
Thus, even after a good harvest, we need to remember that year after year, the temporary nature of this life and the fact that we must ultimately rely on God to provide for us. God says, I want you to remember me in this feast. Remember who I am. Remember what I have done year after year. Remember this. Live in these temporary little uh, ugly little houses and remember me. Remember what I've done for you. So what happens during this last great day of the feast? So on this last seventh day, at about three o'clock in the afternoon, the high priest would lead a procession off the Temple Mount. They'd wander through the streets of Jerusalem down to the Pool of Siloam to fill this golden pitcher that he carried with living water from the pool. And then if we remember anything about this pool, remember there are a lot of cool things and healings that have happened at this pool. So they would march themselves, this huge procession, all the way down um, to this pool. And he would carry this huge golden pitcher, and they would dip it in and fill it up, and then they would march all the way back up to the Temple Mount. <coughs> Excuse me, back up to the Temple Altar. And those people in the procession would carry palm branches, myrtle branches, and willow branches. And together, I'm going to butcher this word. You're going to know this. Um, uh, the lulav. I don't know how to say it, but yeah, I got an okay. Um, so they would carry these three branches in their right hand. It's called the lulav. And a fourth entity called the etrog, which is like this yellow, bumpy, citrusy-looking kind of lemony fruit, uh, they would carry that in their left hand. Uh, the fourth entity, representing the Gentiles or the non-Jewish believers. So that was gathered and held in, in each hand. So these four species together are used in a ceremony to represent the gathering of the nations into Christ, into his barn. And on every other day of the feast, the priestly procession would march around the altar one time when they got back, holding and waving these branches and this little citrusy fruit uh, and shout praises to God. But on the seventh day, this hugely important day, they would circle seven times, around and around, while singing with a loud voice the songs of redemption and the Hosanna prayers out of Psalms. And at the same time that people would be waving their palm branches, the Levites would chant the Hallel in Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. So there's a huge celebration going on. There's a lot of chanting, a lot of singing, a, a lot of just praising God. And at the conclusion of the seventh circle, they took the willow branches, which they had gathered, and placed at the altar as part of the temple ritual for the day, and they would strike these willow branches on the ground, just the willow branches. And in the process, the leaves would fall off of the branches. And these leaves falling off was symbolizing the casting away of the nation's sin. These broken willow leaves are a symbol of man's sins that are cast off on what was considered to be the last and final day of judgment, when the Day of Atonement, which had just happened, was finally confirmed. So really, in a lot of ways, so they take this golden pitcher, they march it down, they fill it full of water, they have this huge procession, singing and praising and psalms all the way back up and marching around seven times, and they smash these willow branches on the ground, symbolizing that their sins are forgiven of them, because their sins are being cast off thanks to the Day of Atonement. One rabbi was quoted as saying, on the final day, the entire congregation marches around seven times, carrying even more willow leaves with them. These seven times, a memorial of the circuits made by the ancient priests around the temple altar during worship, remind us of God's goodness in destroying Jericho once Israel had circled it seven times. In contrast to the festive days of tabernacles, the seventh day is often observed solemnly as an extension of the Day of Atonement. 
On this day, the rabbi tells us, the gates of judgment finally close and the decrees pronounced by God on the day of atonement take effect. This is cool. There's all this imagery happening and all these things going on. Uh, just so much is happening here. And then once the final procession is completed, the high priest, remember he's got this golden pitcher with him still. It's full of this water from this pool. He's handed another pitcher, this time a silver pitcher full of wine. He then pours the water and the wine out together and prays for two things. He first prays for rain for the natural harvest for the year to come. Then he prays, God in heaven, send your Messiah soon and in our days. We cry out now for our Messiah. So he's handed this other pitcher of wine and he pours them out together. The water symbolizing the rains to come and the wine symbolizing the Messiah to come. And it was on this day, the last and greatest day of the feast. Most likely as this priest is praying and pouring this water out together in this wine, that Jesus stands up with a loud voice overshadowing the priest. And he says, come to me if you are thirsty. I am the living water. Let him come to me and drink. Imagine the uproar this statement caused. Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment of what is happening right in front of your eyes. I am this living water. I am the provision. I am the creator. I am the Messiah. Imagine what this radical statement and shock to the crowd must have been. Jesus, are you really saying that you're the Messiah? He is proclaiming, as he has not proclaimed yet in John, that he is the Messiah. It is clear as day to the people what he is saying. Jesus is claiming to be none other than the creator himself. And if we read on, some recognize his authority and plainly say, he is the Messiah in verse 41. Others were absolutely enraged. This is blasphemy. Some wanted to seize him and have him stoned for blasphemy on the spot, which is claiming to be God. Yet we read that the temple guards were unable to even lay a hand on him. When the Pharisees and chief priests questioned the guards as to why they could not arrest him, they simply responded, no one has ever spoken the way this man does. Have you actually listened to what he says? They were unable to act against Jesus when faced with his obvious authority. Do we now understand why the why is so important here? Jesus says, come to me, right? If you are thirsty, come to him. And that's an amazing statement. But it becomes so much more impactful when we realize the scene and the setting of here is this priest pouring out this symbolic water and this wine together and Jesus interrupting it and saying, I am here. I am that fulfillment. The Pharisees responded to those guards as many people do today. You mean he's deceived you as well? It was inconceivable to them that they were deceived. It was inconceivable that Jesus' claims could be true and they themselves could therefore be wrong. Pride prevented them from questioning their own supposed wisdom. The fact that they didn't believe became settled once and for all. We're going to kill him. He's wrong. He's wrong. No, he can't be Jesus. Nothing comes from Bethlehem. What is this? What are you guys talking about? They reasoned that since they didn't believe, that it couldn't possibly be true. Oh, we're the educated ones. 
If it can't be true, then the rest of you, you guys are just idiots for following him as well. You've been deceived as well. They themselves, they held themselves up as the proprietors of truth, the authority really above the law. The masses, they decided, were ignorant, and they knew nothing. Does this sound familiar? Isn't this the essence of unbelief? When the truths of Jesus are raised, how many times do we hear, especially in a well-educated place like Benton County, how you just, you just don't know any better. You're ignorant. I am smarter than that. I don't need that crutch. You can have your belief, yes, in some old religion. I'm smarter than that now. I'm educated. I don't need these things. It's for people who need some sort of security. I've heard someone say, I am secure in my unbelief, which is a weird statement to say. But we hear that over and over. That the belief in, in Jesus and in God is for the, the uneducated. And I think it's no coincidence that Jesus chose this occasion, the last and greatest day of the Feast of Tabernacles, to make the declaration that if a man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Jesus proclaimed himself to be the great provider the Redeemer of Israel, the one who led the people through the wilderness. I am that pillar. He is the great light shining in the darkness, and his body is the great temple which is raised up after being destroyed in the final sin offering. Remember, they just beat these willow branches on the ground, symbolizing the forgiveness of sins, and Jesus is saying, I am that forgiveness. I am the Messiah. If you really want to read on, I just wish we had time, but we don't. In chapter 8, Jesus says, I am the light. Every year at this ceremony, and especially this last great day, they would light these humongous, they're like 75 foot tall, gigantic candelabras that would light up the entire temple to be seen for miles and miles and miles. Remember, pitch black dark, right? They don't have electricity. And here's Jesus standing in front of these things saying, I am the light. It's amazing. So go ahead and read chapter 8, but... Um, Jesus promised living water for all who believe. What is living water? It's cool. It's fresh spring water. In the land of Israel, water is especially precious. And in Jesus' time, there were really only three main ways of getting water. You could build a cistern and collect rainfall, but if there wasn't enough rain, you didn't have enough water. Or it would become stale. You could dig a well a lot more uh, reliable, but there weren't a lot of options for wells. The most prized source of water was a spring, bubbling up out of the ground, a constant flow of freshing water. It was the sweetest and best water of all. It bubbles up from the recesses of the earth, clean and pure, when everything else is dried up. If you ever get a chance to hike to the top of some stream and drink the water coming straight out of the mountain, it's amazing. Jesus is saying, I am that living water. This is the water that Jesus promised, the best water, real spiritual satisfaction. This is his promise to those who believe. This water does not dry up. It doesn't spoil. It never goes away. It is the best. To those who have not tasted this living water, I encourage you to press into him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. He is here waiting he died on our behalf so that we could experience a life of freedom and judgment 
washed clean of our sin. Just as they had beaten those willow leaves on the ground and their sins were cast off, Jesus says, I am here for you. Believe in me. Press into him in faith. So those who do believe, I encourage you to let the living water flow out of you. If you've ever been to a spring bubbling up, you can't really stop it. You could step on it or put your hands on it and you get like this cartoony spray coming out, I suppose. Jesus is that same spray coming out of us. We cannot stop it. Don't stop it. God has placed us in circles of influence for a reason. I am strongly convinced that the people that we all know, we all know different groups of people, and you're in that circle of influence because you are the best person to reach those people. I just got hired last week, amazingly enough, um, to be a financial aid advisor at OSU. Now, I didn't do that because I'm some amazingly merited financial aid advisor. In fact, I know nothing. Um, <laughs> yeah. I was at a conference all last week, and it was a training, a week-long training up in Spokane. And people have asked me, like, was it overwhelming? It actually wasn't because I didn't understand any of it. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, now I lost my train of thought. Uh, Jesus says, let me flow out of you. I am in that circle of influence in the financial aid office with 21 other staff members for a reason. Yeah, it's going to be an awesome opportunity for me to hang out with students and uh, for our family to support ourselves, but that's really not the point. The point is that God says, I want you to be an influence there right now. And I think every single one of us in here that are believers, God says, I have you wherever you are because you are the best person to reach that group of people. Let his water flow out of you. Be the light and the life and the water to everyone around you that needs to hear and believe. We just sang these words. Do you feel the world is broken? Do you feel the shadows deepen? Do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? Do you wish that you could see it all made new? Is all creation groaning? Is a new creation coming? Is the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst? Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll? Is he worthy? Is he worthy of all the blessing and the honor and the glory? Is he worthy of all of this? Really? And Jesus is standing up, arms open wide, saying, Yes, I am worthy. Would you pray with me? God, we just thank you for who you are. God, we thank you that despite our, uh, our just our often times of our ignorance, of our saying that we're too smart, God, of our unbelief, God, that you still love us and cling to us despite of that. God, we thank you for examples like this in Scripture when we really get to see what is happening in the scene. God, it just brings so much power to who you are as Jesus, as Christ, as the Messiah. God, I pray that we would just cling to you. God, I pray that those of us in here this morning that don't believe, God, that, that they would just press in and get a taste of who you are. God, I just do pray that those of us who do believe, God, that this week, this month, this year, that we would just have so many opportunities to let your water flow out of us. God, I pray that we would just become these, these just overflowing vessels of love to those around us. God, we thank you for who you are. And we pray. Amen.